0: I went back and counted the number of talks so far in this series we've had 30. <laughs> i just feel like i'm getting started <laughs> and we're currently in this satipatthana sutta looking at uh, fleshing out the mind what it's about and looking at the different states of mind that formulate around different uh, propensities that we have certain tendencies that we have these groupings are large groupings of states of mind. In fact, many of them contain uh, a, co- a combination of different states. They're not single states in themselves. Like, for instance, tonight we're going to be talking about division through judgment. <clears throat> judging mind, well, often in the judging mind there's also the doubting mind. There's the inadequate mind. There's the, sometimes the angry mind, sometimes uh, on and on fearful mind so uh, these things shouldn't be seen as being in ent- entities in themselves but rather opportunities to look at particular patterns in us that come forward and when they come forward they have such a compelling nature often a defensive nature because we use them as a way to defend ourselves from a pain that we are loath to acknowledge and we then move out into these tendencies full-blown fully created uh, fully substantiated in our story and our narrative in our combative attitude if that's our tendency or in our in our uh, unworthy withering attitude which if, if we have a tendency to go back the other way just depends uh and and very defined very uh, isolated within that state so it's under it's important to understand these states because. It is through these states that we come into our sense of separation and isolation from one another often um, most emphatically when these states arise we may have a lingering tendency to come out or to move into isolation just in the course of the day but when these states come out we are very very defined and very uh, on guard against the world it's that defensive quality that sense of being in combat with something or being needing to, uh, it's kind of a, well, there's a sort of a war that we feel, a boundary, a force that's being created there uh, that these uh, states of mind uh, seem to insist upon. So what is it that we are to do? Because they're they're saying, behave as if you were me these states arise they're just states it's amazing to me they're, What is a state it's a, a thought it's a, an attitudinal uh, direction it has a thought and a basis of history and memory and when you have the billions of neurons firing simultaneously each of them carrying a bit of information about yourself in relationship to the conditions that are arising in this moment these states come out and we invest in these states and they come out as me and we have no uh really we don't really have any uh, tendency to go and see what they are we just act them out we just play them out we just who's ever in front of us when one of these states arises it's they get fed by these states our state feeds upon whatever it needs to feed upon often to the detriment of that relationship and then it can go back in and quiet down and and feel well fed <laughs> uh, but what are they i mean what we as spiritual seekers want to have a different understanding to our mind we don't want to just be uh automatically reactive, as these states explode upon the stage of our being, we want to know what these states are. We have to go underneath the reactivity. We have to begin to flesh out what's contained in these states. And may I say, and I've said before, but it's important to reinforce, that it's through understanding that these states become neutralized, so to speak. Uh, we have invested so much of our belief system into these states we believe them to be something that are that they can never ever uh, be once we start looking at them as we start bringing our conscious attention to them they wither under our observation and they can't maintain that sense of embodied energy that could only be uh, whose momentum rested upon us not looking at them. So the first thing we have to do is to actually take these apart. And they're not states that we want to take apart. They're states that are often very uh, contagious within us. And not only contagious within us, but when other people see us on display, it touches that state in them and gives them some kind of okayness to display that state as well have you ever noticed what happens around a water cooler or wherever you might be you know harboring your extra time you go and you meet a few people and you start talking about the boss or situations or the politics or government or something and then the people who who resonate with the energy of that negativity stay at the water cooler. the rest of the people go away and then it starts getting just going down doesn't it It starts the it's like a waterfall effect and each encouraging the other towards that particular perspective and it has a contagious quality to it and so as we begin to think oh you know we're alone in this because the state of mind feels us alone we love to have company with other people who are in the same state of mind so we breed that ill-contempt so that we will have companionship in it we just give ourselves away to these states uh, and um, you know the mind state itself is not the enemy so let us not set up a new uh, aversive relationship to these states of mind but less understanding doesn't have a negative relationship to anything it's to understand something is to neutralize whatever relationship we already have through understanding we no longer carry forth the negativity that we initially had for it so this understanding is a very important part of it and part of that understanding and many people uh, seek some sanity through therapy and i think it's a very important way for many people who are interested in mental health to have therapeutic intervention Therapy at its best will bring these emotions uh, up to the surface so that they can be felt and acknowledged within the gaze of somebody else's non-judgment. Uh, but the uh, difference, really, between what we're trying to do here in therapy, and this is not a disparaging comment on therapy, but it's to show that we have to move further than where the therapeutic intervention usually contains us, and that is that Therapy, I think, often has a modification of the story about ourselves as we acknowledge our history and as we come to terms with the reactivity that's in us, we change our story a little bit. We change the narrative. Well, what we're interested in doing in spiritual work is ending the narrative, being absolutely still in ourselves. Because there's nowhere else to move. There's nowhere else that we need to move. We only move when we are in some kind of disquieting or uncomfortable or, or um, a sense of ourselves as being incomplete. We'll move on. Uh, so unless we come to this base sense of who we are within these states of mind, they will just fester into... Uh, permutations of themselves and move out into other areas with perhaps a quieter or a more gentle narrative but with the sense of I still very much in place so we're going really to the depths calling ourselves back to the depths of our being here but then what is spirituality about but to see what this thing is to to really look at what this six foot long tube is that walks around (laughs) to see what this thing what makes it go why are we assuming what we assume what is this going what's going on here And to, to notice in them in in how the mind you know in its most uh, enlightened moments in its most restful moments and its most completed moments has a sense of unity about it it's not uh It's not separated as uh, fractured in any way and contesting each other's uh, point of view, which is what our mind often does. We have an experience and then part of us doesn't like what is occurring and has a counter argument to what is occurring. And that kind of constant contest and argument and resistance goes on all the time. And that sense of unity is lost as soon as there's a pull-out point and an argument towards a particular experience we're having. What we're trying to do is come back to unity. Now, a unified mind is a quiet mind. Okay, a noisy mind is a mind that generates a sense of me and the expi- against or for the experience I'm having. But a quiet mind is a unified mind, and a unified mind doesn't contain that pull-out position, that sense of isolation. And so what we're doing as we are flushing out these states of mind in all of its different forms and looking at them and showing some sincerity and going into them being willing and having the courage to go into them is we're coming back to a unified mind coming back to like you know how the what do you call those things that the pendulum the pendulum. (laughs) the pendulum comes to a rest finally And how does it become unrested or disquieted? A feeling comes up: a pleasant, an unpleasant, or neutral. Something entices it out of its unity. And in that moment it says, "I'd rather have pleasure than unity. What the hell's good as unity? And in order to have pleasure, we have to embody a sense of separation in order to have, right? You can't have something unless there's you that can grab it. And so you have to come into your, we have to come into ourselves in a complete representation of form to pursue, to pursue. Now it's very interesting what we pursue, since everything is here, what we pursue is a future. Because that isn't here, is it? And so very much tied to this sense of of separation out of unity is time time to meet my needs, time to acquire what it is I need to acquire, time to reach and indulge in the pleasure now that I'm feeling, time to really feel the indulgence of my life, on and on. Unity doesn't have that privilege. Unity is based in reality. It's not in any way separate from reality, and therefore it can't pull itself out of reality. Nor does it have any tendency or want to do so. Why doesn't it? Because it has seen the limitation of doing so after how many eons of having done it. How many times do we have to put our finger in the fire before we say, this isn't most skillful action I've ever done. <laughs> and when we get a sense that, when we start looking in a wise way, we begin to see how it is that we uh, create the pain of our life through the pulling out and separation of our life. And we just say, you know, I, I don't want to do this anymore. And so that's a there's a deep there's a deep resonance that comes in meditation. Meditation is the beginning of the process of of returning, of returning to that unity. Why would you want to sit and do nothing? You see, it already shows a maturity of an appreciation for silence. It already shows an inclination towards unity, towards coming back, towards being settled. And even if you sit, for, you know, not as, not for a very long time, still, it's, it just, it gets you done, there's something in, in it, you just, and you don't do it for a while, and you start missing it, or some part of you just feels undernourished. And it's that part... When you come here, hopefully, that we do nourish, that we do encourage, uh, because that's the part that yearns for, longs for that sense of reconnection, reconnection. And so, we reconnect our way all the way back to unity. Now, what does reconnection look like? It looks like reconnecting. So, when these states of mind come up, we don't act them out. That's not reconnecting with them, reacting to them, playing them out is complete ignorance of them it's just letting them have their day with my body and mind I'm a puppet to them reconnecting means feeling them again instead of just reacting to them let's feel them let's let's go into them let's decipher every level of this thing let me feel every tendency I have and in that I come back into a kind of stillness with that mind through understanding and now back to unity and back to a a quietude. But I will never come back to that quietude as long as I stay reactive to these states. That's why we're looking at these states. That's why we're looking at these states. And these these states, I hope everyone can identify with, can sense that they're in you. And tonight, the state of judgment, I hope is not too (laughs) alien. To any of you because it once we resist and pull out what judgment is when that sense of resisting the experience at hand judgment is the verbalization of that resistance internally or externally I shouldn't like it's all it really has its basis in just about everything we do uh, it's the mind that is contesting its own experience through resistance and giving verbalization to that through judgment. Now, there's extraordinary subtlety in judgment. Uh, judgment, uh, every thought, and I just want to take you to the subtlety here so that we begin to see how uh, pervasive judgment is in us, but every thought that we have turns <clears throat> us in a certain way and anything that turns us in a certain way turns us against another way. In this case, unity, or whatever it is that the, where the judgment might be persuading. And so, every word, every thought is itself a form of judgment. And so, we're always leaning in accordance to the words we're offering, the life we're living. Uh, and if those, li- and that those words are energetic and have a lot of infusion of energy then they're going to have not just a sentence of narrative but an emotional response to that situation as well and so then those emotions will then foster further thoughts and those thoughts will foster further reactive emotions and those two just feed each other like that so we're looking at this sense of judgment and we have to get a sense that behind judgment is unseen pain. Any time we react, I mean, I hope you know this by now. I mean, I just, I'm kind of reviewing, right? So we've been doing this for 30 talks. My hope is that something's gotten in there because, uh, you know, it's, this has a common thread through all of these 30 talks. There's a common thread here. And uh, this sense of reactivity, when we react, we're not, we're reacting away from something. Something has struck a chord in us. That chord almost always has to do with some issue of pain in ourselves. And so the response or overcompensation of that pain is the reactive response, in this case, judgment. So judgment is a symptom of a deeper level of pain in us, a much deeper level of pain. And now judgment, uh, just to make it so that we don't feel so shameful of the judgment we carry, because all of us carry an enormous amount of judgment. In fact, on retreat, Next to knee pain, that's the most important uh, experience that's relayed as problematic. Oh, I have so much judgment. But that judgment isn't just on retreat; it's all the time. If you just look around, your almost everywhere your mind lights, there's some form of judgment that's arising. And so, it's important for us to get a sense that there's a childhood. Uh, induction into judgment that each of us go through in terms of our family history you don 't have to search too far to get a sense of what that history was like for you and why you hold often the prejudices that you hold now. You know what is it that was valued in your family and not, and disvalued and how was themes like gender and money and status and ethnic groups how was that seen and even non-verbally and understood within your family and communicated in your family and when you're small you just assume the nature of the world of the adult and you just start seeing the world from that and after a while it becomes the home base for us to grow in terms of our sense of self our sense of righteousness our sense of ideas of self and then there comes a whole emotional and attitudinal fix that those judgments begin to hold over time. But that's basically where judgment starts. And if you want to look at self-judgment, the question I would ask you is, you know, how were you spoken to as a child? What ways were you accepted or not accepted as a child? And those particular invested conversations and communication Strategies became incorporated in how we have hold or hold ourselves in terms of our own, our own sense of self-worth. So, get a sense of that. This is a long-standing uh, and very enduro enduring uh, uh, tendency in us. Now, what we have to do as uh, in spiritual journey is to not just weigh heavily upon where they came from. And say, oh, you know, it's all my parents and all that. We stay accountable to the feelings that we have because we've incorporated them. Your parents were no more uh, responsible for their judgment than you are. We each just pass it along generation after generation, and whatever your family's psychic. Uh, system was, we take that psychic system outside when we leave our family. Even if we, especially if we have a reaction, strong reaction, either positive or negative, to the parents within that family, we'll carry it even heavier. And we'll carry it often, we don't even realize we're carrying it, but we carry it with us from our aversion or our attachment to those particular parental styles. So it's important to, to get a sense that they're there, To be honest with them and be accountable. Don't let their voice of your mother take you to the relationship of aversion that you might have with your mother. Just listen to that voice. Oh, my mother used to say that. Or you just let that sit there with you. And then, as you sit there with you, you have to be accountable. We have to be accountable for it. We can't. All I, you know, I can't. I can't stand this voice with you. No, it's in you. you. We have to be accountable to it. So let's just open up and listen to this thing it's now your voice and if you have children likely you're passing it on to them and they'll do the same to theirs so let's look at this thing and that accountability allows us to end the chain of events which hands it off from one generation to the next if you say this will stop with me because I will be accountable to it instead of just passing through reactivity to the next generation, it will stop with you. It will stop with you. But how many of us are willing to be accountable to those? Uh, that the sense of worth within us, or the voices that of judgment within us, it's so much easier to blame them away, isn't it? To just excuse them, to say, "Well, it's not me," even though it's in you. It really wasn't something I wanted, which may be true, but it's something you've got. You, you own it now. And it has to be completely uprooted through our understanding. Now, as I start going into uh, judgment, I want to talk about three reasons uh, that we should even want to explore judgment. The first reason is that uh, judgment is seeing the world in quantifiable terms. Uh, And you may not uh, understand the impact that quantifiable terms have on you, but when you start looking at the polar opposites of life, those have often take their root in forms of judgment, moralism. And the tensions that we create from the judgments that we assert and the polarities that are created through that infusion of justice, of judgment, into each and everything and if we have something that we're neutral about we feel a kind of confused it's not clear you know that everyone supposed to have an opinion about something and so forming judgments in this culture is almost contagious as well and so most of us have judgments about everything and if we don't we quickly form them just to have be on the right side or the wrong side according to our inward map of polarities and so these polar opposites Weigh in tremendously on the stress and resistance that we each carry with us throughout our life and it's induced the the vision of that the perception of that comes from this constant need to judge each and everything that we see and so alright so that's not a very pleasant aspect of judging let me it's again it's the unseen pain of judgment and especially you know it's what we think of when we quantify something is that there's only a certain amount amount available and often because we have a sense of a ongoing sense of inadequacy we got left out of the whatever quantity we're assessing contentment quiet calm peace Samadhi. I don't know. We're full of being left out in the spiritual world, and it's because we think the the, the we just didn't get a, we didn't get our share of it. We didn't get our share, and I don't. I'm not up to the task. See, when we think, well, I could always cultivate it. No, I'm not. I can't do that. I'm just not. I can't do that. So we meet everything. Our judgments. I don't, it just keeps going. I hope you all see the lineage of insanity here <laughs> it's the lineage of insanity and spiritually we do the same thing we carry a judgment spiritually you know gosh she sits so well you know like that's some kind of of proclamation of their wisdom or God she was in my group and she said something so wise I don't, I don't know what to, I, I'm not that wise and I can't sit that long and then pretty soon you just implode yeah, I, I should i'll tell you a story where i imploded <laughs> so i was into sit, you know like hour sitting and all that so i was a monk and i was going to sit straighter and better and stiller and quieter and longer than so i went to this monastery as a new monk i was a very young monk i went to this monastery and this guy that was uh sitting beside me just and he just it wasn't moving and the Bell was rung and he still wasn't moving and we went throughout our day and he still wasn't moving. And he was just sitting there. I thought, my God, what's the, what is the story about this guy? Well, I asked another monk. I said, who is this monk, this Thai monk who never moves? The story of him is that he had just come out of a, a three-year retreat in which he resolved that he was not going to get up from sitting except once a day to toilet and shower. So this monk sat for three years, and mosquito, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> so I caught him right when he was coming out of retreat, and he was, happened to be sitting next to me, and the guy never moved. <laughs> he could have done another three-year retreat, because, I don't know, I, I mean, he was just amazing. So at that point I realized I was not in competition any longer (laughs) I wasn't gonna win this one I don't care how (laughs) much how I try how much I invested in that one and so it 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 showed me something it showed me that you know it's not about that at all in fact I you know it it might have worked for him but if I had tried to do that it would have sent me into a very heightened state of arrogance right and and i would have been uh, i would have come out of 3 years with a masterly sense of control but i'm not sure that would have been very helpful to me so we have to pick our procedures our techniques our practices in accordance to our own inward tendencies and to our own but if those inward tendencies it's not just following our inward tendencies and doing whatever our mind tells us to do We want to look and see what those tendencies are in ourselves, get a new life with them, see them afresh and anew. Okay, so that's the first reason we want to look at judgment, is because it's a world of quantifiable terms and that when that is just left to run on its own, it polarizes virtually all opposites in the world, and then we take a judgmental tone with one side of that opposite versus the other. The other is that it's a symptom of pain, and uh, judgment is driven by pain. For a number of years, I just sat, and my teachers would say, just be with judging, be with the judging mind, judging, judging, you know, you just be with judging, but it never, it just continued. I never saw any, it was unrelenting. And I thought, wait a minute here. Let's, let's go back a little bit. What's happening at the moment of judgment? At the moment of judgment, what's going on? Let me look at what's happening at the moment of judgment. And what I could see, what I began to see, was, now it's extraordinarily subtle, but in the moment of judgment in which we go out and judge, in the moment right before we go out, knee-jerk out, there's a sense of, an assumed identity, an assumption, self-assumption that we feel about ourselves. There's a pain spark. It's the spark plug that gets us to move out into judgment. It's we're feeling in that instant, right before judgment or during judgment sometimes, this sense of, of, of something lacking in ourself. Now, what does a judgment do? Judgment allows me to have some space to that, problematic image that hurts so I I have to just lower your head to be able to raise mine right now I'm raise up above the pain of what I feel about myself by lowering you in my evaluation of you lowering you down so the problem is that as soon as I stop judging it gets reversed again and so that's why judging is a continuous process we keep trying to keep this thing to our advantage. And what what happens is that after a while, the differences become obvious to you. You bring somebody's head down, your head is raised up, but you don't really believe that you're above where everyone else is. And so there's a greater discrepancy between the assumption you know about yourself and where you're, elevated teeter-totter resides and so when it comes down again now you've got to be more boisterous in your judgment to get it back up so that you can even be higher than you were you see so there's this infusion of of dynamic and energy into keeping the judgment going ever more emphatically so that we can feel the relief that we want to feel through the judgment itself now that's pretty tiring. <laughs> and you begin to sense, wow, you know, this, this thing... It just doesn't end. It doesn't end. But you've got to be... You see, we're not necessarily aware of that we're even doing that because we're in pain. We have so long looked outside, external, not internally to see where the pain resides, but external to see where the judgment goes, that we really believe that life deserves the judgment we're giving it. It's just a part of who I am in terms of life. And yes, I have when I judge I have a kind of righteous indignation and arrogance, but that's the way I feel good about myself. And that's and they deserve to be judged. And we, so we in a convoluted way of thinking we then make life deserving of being judged and uh, we don't even see the connection to our own pain pain's never touched so there's enormous amount of pain now there's also a payoff to judgment you know we can't skip by i never want to skip by any reactive pattern without seeing the payoff of what it's doing for us and i've already mentioned what it's doing for us is that it gives us a very strong definition of ourselves and that is a saving grace of all of the dynamics all of these emotional dynamics within us is that there's a payoff to it And we put so much value into the payoff because we're so afraid of the truth of the pain that we just keep this judgment going in order to have payoff after payoff. But it's firing caps, blanks, blanks. It never convinces us, in other words. It never convinces us that the pain we feel isn't the truth. And in a moment of of a task we can feel it often you know where we feel incompetent to the task at hand where we feel unworthy of what you know all of that it comes in and then we scramble we're in scramble mode you know we get to the scramble the jets you know that and all of a sudden you know we're on high alert for some way to counteract this pain we're feeling sometimes it's done through kind of a an angry overcompensation, a blame, but it's always a blame. It can be a self-blame, but it's always a blame. So the payoff is our, of our judgment is positionality. We get a place in things. You have to be awful noisy to have a place. And so we're willing to yell and scream and judge so that we have a place in life. See me? you see me yet you know it's quite uh, so in judging there's the pain of judgment in the third zen patriarch they say um what does he say uh the burdensome act of judging and it is it's like just the the pain of judging there's the pain of judging itself like oh just it's, it feels base and gross. It's just the energy is so thump. You know, it's like, ugh. For someone who lives a life in which unity is a part of that living experience, judgment is intolerable. Judgment's intolerable. And all of us have moments in which we know that. Relaxed presence before we judge it away. <laughs> so there's the pain of the judgment. Then, as I mentioned, there's the pain driving the judgment. That's the sense of inadequacy that we feel that we never quite compensate for and keeps the judgment forever moving forward. And then there's the pain of the effect of having judged. Right? Because it's not, after you've judged the world, if you look at it from any sane way, it doesn't come back very connected. You may get your arrogance out of it. You may feel deserving. But that's not a pleasant feeling. In fact, many of the states that we think are pleasant when really scrutinized aren't very pleasant at all. And that certainly is one of them. and you just you begin to think wow oh god because it's so distant we think we were cut off before after judgment we feel so isolated feel like an island in ourselves. and so these three issues of pain the pain of judgment of judging the pain that leads to judgment that we carry with us and the effect of us on judging are the three sisters of judgment and again you know it hurts what else can we say about it it hurts so uh, we have to reach a threshold in which we have decided we've had enough now a lot of what I'm doing is encouraging us towards that threshold. I bring up these very difficult subjects. It's not easy to sit and listen to this because if you're following it experientially, you're feeling the pain that is lying back there in wait to judge. But I want to take you there. And I'm not doing this in any kind of malicious sense. I'm doing this because unless we see that, unless we touch it, It'll st- stay kind of innocuous. It will. We won't even know that it's around. And sometimes, as a group, we can come to these deep resolutions of heart to say, "Okay, I've had enough of this now. Let's move forward in this one." You know, I don't need to keep keep this going. And then we come to the fir- third and final. Uh, reason that judgment is so important for us to perceive and to look at and that is because of how judgment keeps us so ongoingly distant and away from the unity of our hearts. Uh, now the great threat to the sense of self is stillness, is quietude. Because there's nowhere to rub. There's no rub in silence. If you are cocooned in silence, you have no sense of your own limitation, of your own boundaries. Because silence doesn't give you any rub. You only know a boundary when there's a rub, don't you? Like when somebody invades our turf. But in silence, there's no invasion. So you begin to see that judgment serves the noise we need to make in order to be personified and it counteracts the real enemy here is not the inadequacy we feel we're willing to feel the inadequacy if it keeps us defined as long as we don't have to encompass ourselves in the silence that gives us no definition at all so this willingness this fear of being undefined is what many of us call emptiness, and it's why we're so afraid of that term. And when we talk about emptiness in this tradition, you know, people get panic attacks. And that panic attack is because they sense that emptiness doesn't allow them a place, honor their place on earth, which couldn't be more untrue. To find our place in unity and be willing to be quiet assures us, knowing exactly, having the confidence that arises. See, some of these, some other uh, qualities arise in the absence of mental turmoil, and one of them is confidence of being you simply know where you are and you without excuse without apology because it's so clear it's just so clear now we encourage we have to encourage our way towards the understanding of these complex issues And I can't think of a word that allows exploration more fully than the word relaxation. Are we willing, in the midst of judgment, that our tendency is to move out and confirm the truth of the blame that judgment holds? I mean, there's just just that quick. Are we willing... Okay, so wait a minute here. What am I feeling in this moment of judging? What's going on inside me? Go back this way. Don't go out. Go back this way. It's not about them. It's about the pain I'm feeling. Let me feel this. Let me get a sense of this. Does it cue us into a way that we need to look, a depth of understanding that we need to infiltrate to allow Ourselves to come to some sort of resolution within this pain so that judgment does, just doesn't persist any longer. In fact, it cues us. When there is a judgment, it cues us, okay, not outside, inside. You start using the very markers that led you to an external leap to encourage yourself back in. Okay, let's see. I call those reverse cues because they're, they have to, they're reverse in the effects of what they have upon us. And each time we do, it's not that we bring a judgment to what we see. I mean, that in itself is crazy making to start investing more judgment into what we see that's already shameful enough or inadequate enough. It's to be quiet with what we see, because that's the nature, that's the conduit for understanding. It's an opinion. You can't understand something if you have your opinions about something. You, all you see is your opinions, right? But when, you're, when we're quiet with something, then whatever that something is can impart what it is to us. And so being quiet becomes the way we receive our own judgment. And now we're moving judgment towards more stillness, not towards more rancor. Having no sound of self. No sound of self. Not even a peep. Thank you all. Can we sit for a minute or two? So meet whatever is arising within you with no sound of self. And that includes the sounds that are being that are coming forth on their own add nothing to those sounds you can't stop the thoughts but you don't have to add to them no sound itself Okay, if there are any questions or comments about anything, I'd be happy to try to respond. Have to speak up. Okay, so she said that uh, her biggest challenge is indulgence, if I can use that word, in pleasurable experiences, right? That you're going to lose out on what it means to be human and the whole array of pleasurable experiences at hand, right? So I'm not in any way suggesting that that's not a strategy that can be used towards coming to a resolution. Uh, whatever our tendency is we want to we don't want to deny it's not going to do any good if you just turn your back and and just turn your i'm not going to do you know because that's not going to satisfy the need you feel and pursuing pleasure what you have to what i would invite you to do is to see whether pleasure is as much as you expect it to be has it is the payoff worth the price of your pursuit. Uh, because the practice in no way is anti-pleasure. It doesn't have us turning back on pleasurable experiences, neither does it have us turn our back on unpleasant experiences. But to pursue pleasure has a kind of tension associated with it that isn't just whatever life brings, it's me going out and seeking. That pursuit of pleasure has a toll it's taking on you. It has a cost. Every time we make a decision to go in a particular direction, it has a cost. In fact, pursuing you, or uh, allowing unity has a cost. You, you understand that? You see, feel the cost of st- of stillness. Well, it's everything but we're not going to give up everything until we have come to the limitation, until we see that everything isn't worth pursuing. So as long as we aren't interested in quiet, we're interested in pleasure, let's go with our eyes wide open, see whether pleasure gives us what pleasure is supposed to give us, see what cost it takes upon us, see how I uh, strive in relationship to other people, see if it doesn't bring about comparison and competition and see if it doesn't you know see how long the pleasure lasts once it does get obtained see whether it's as delightful as we expected it to be and how long that delight lasts to see the expense i mean right we drive our car across the country what was the expense in driving across the country what about all the gas we had to buy what about you know what about all of that we have to take it all into consideration and then through that understanding there won't be a turning away of pleasure there'll be a turning away of the pursuit of pleasure. And then when pleasure comes, it's enjoyed fully, but it isn't retained or tried to, we don't try to retain it beyond its natural duration. So it comes, and it goes, and you feel pleasure, and then you don't. And there's no longing after the comet's tail. It's simply Is okay to be without it and to be with it. Yes? Does that type of pleasure feel as good as the kind that we think we're going to get by seeking? That's a good question. Mm -hmm. Does the type of pleasure we feel when we're just available to it, is it? Is good as the pleasure we partake in when we pursue it. It's a very good. It's a very good question. Go ahead. Have you ever tried to mindfully eat? Right. So you, you know, it's just not quite as good <laughs> because you're being aware. you See, so much of what we consider to be good is the expectation we have of it being good, and we just keep moving We don't actually taste the food in terms of the enjoyment. We. T- we're looking for the future for the next hit we can have that will surmount the one we just had and so there's this constant expectation of greater pleasure that makes it seem as if there's an elevation of pleasure through the whole event of thanksgiving meal (laughs) so when you're mindful and you're not putting yourself ahead of what you're doing you're tasting the pleasure that's there not the pleasure that will be and so it's like well that was okay you also see it come and go it doesn't but it's the truth that's the truth of the pleasure that's the truth of it it's not being compelled into an imaginative truth it's is the truth of it so the truth is that the pleasure isn't doesn't match the imaginative anticipation of pleasure that uncontrolled thoughts will allow but it takes you to the truth of what the pleasure really is which is it's only this much it's only this much Yes. So I just want to go back to your premise, because I don't hold that same premise, that in order to live in this world, we have to have opinions and judgments about it. You see, what most of us, that's the reason, another reason that we compel judgment forward is we think that we would become, I don't know, fill in the blank if we didn't have opinions and judgment, that we'd become what? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know passive or I don't know moral. what oh boy <laughs> <laughs> no I I mean, I encourage you to to test that theory because you will never give up your judgments or even relinquish them or even be willing to look at them if you hold that theory now I hold a different orientation and that is that what comes the minds the, the mind attempts to have everything known to it as being good or bad moral immoral and that's the way it encourages itself forward into events of right or wrong and that sort of thing right through moral judgment and control so as long as that is the is the strategy we use there's another strategy that can never be seen when you come to quiet there's the ability to discern First of all, quiet, as I mentioned in the talk, is unifying. It's not separate. So what comes in when you see in unification terms is a sense of love for things, which holds its own wise action, holds its own speech, holds its own, and I want you, ethical way of being. It's not moral in the sense it pits one thing against the other because it's based in love. And it also has a discerning quality that then knows what it needs to do more spontaneously derived than contrived by a kind of map, a moral map that we place upon things. See, we never get to the depth of that spontaneity of the the union because we're too afraid that if we let go of the contracted way that we keep ourselves motivated through moral judgment and that those two never meet they can't ever meet because to keep yourself morally judged and morally motivated is so noisy that you can't feel the unification of stillness that is why I say I send you to the noise and then you have to wear yourself out through the noise of the mind when you think your moralism is the way you serve. Look at how it bites you back. You know, the tensions you hold. See what it does to you as well. When you hold a moral attitude about anything in yourself, I guarantee you that that behavior has not been uprooted. That it waits in a shadowy form to spring forth into into, uh, when you are being compromised, you will act it out. Now, by compromise, you let your guard down a little bit. You see, this ethical conduct that I'm talking about is a natural state of seeing in love. You see, so, but as long as you hold, and the mo- m- m- most important part of this response is that as long as you hold yourself in that uh, within that opinion, that I need my moral opinions and my judgments in order to live. You'll never seek anything else. So you have to come to the limitation of that particular paradigm you're in in order for you to want to evolve out of it. I can't force that from you. No one else can. You have to see its own limitation. But it's a very good question, and I appreciate that question. Now we'll have to stop. And I want to thank you all. And I want to thank you. I'm going to be gone next week. We're going to be doing a... uh